2: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today.
0: Barbican Screen Talks. Hello and welcome to the latest in our series of Barbican Screen Talks. Every month we bring you classic conversations with some of the world's leading filmmakers and film fans, hand-selected from our formidable Barbican archives. This month we hear from one of the most subversive and influential directors to work in Hollywood, in a conversation recorded four years before his death. Robert Altman was born in Kansas City, Missouri in 1925. After a stint as a co-pilot in the U.S. Air Force, he moved to California, deciding to enter the world of filmmaking on a whim. Starting as a director for hire on film and television in the 1950s, Altman didn't become a household name until 1970, with the release of Korean war satire M.A.S.H. Over a 50-plus year career, Altman racked up five Best Director Oscar nominations, as well as The Golden Bear at Berlin, The Golden Lion at Venice and The Golden Palm at Cannes. He also helped to launch acting careers from the likes of Elliot Gould, Shelley Duval and Keith Carradine. In this conversation from 2002, Robert Altman talks to film and TV producer David Thompson about his British period drama, Gosford Park. Set in 1932, the film depicts the lives of upstairs guests and downstairs servants as an English country house party, disrupted by murder and the ensuing investigation. The screenplay was written by Downton Abbey's Julian Fellows, and in fact that TV series was originally intended as a spin-off of Gosford Park. And Fellows isn't the only significant name attached to the film. The 35-strong ensemble cast is a who's who of UK actors, including Dame Maggie Smith, Stephen Fry, Kristen Scott Thomas and Alan Bates. In the interview you're about to hear, Altman explains his surprisingly practical approach to casting, and why British actors in particular are such a joy to work with. He discusses his planned follow-up film, Voltage, still sadly unmade, and he reveals why he was so keen to include swearing in Gosford Park. On that note, please be warned, this interview contains some strong language. Some of the audience questions in this recording are difficult to hear, so I'll pop back in from time to time to help out with those. But for now, I'm Melanie Jones and this is Barbican Screen Talks with the masterful Robert Altman.
1: Well, now you've seen the film, I don't need to tell you who did it, because he did it. (laughs) (laughs) We had souvenirs we sell in the lobby. (laughs) (laughs) You said that um, what interested you in doing this film was it was a genre you hadn't approached before. Obviously, what a lot of people are being fascinated by is how much you've gone into the British class system. So where does all that come from?
2: My partner, uh, producing partner on this, Bob Balaban, who plays Morris Weissman in the film, is a, sort of a renaissance man. He's an actor and a director and a producer, and he does everything. He came to me about two and a half years ago, and he said, is there anything, our companies, that we could develop together? And I said, well, I've never done a Who Done It." I said, you know, one of those... Agatha Christie things, everybody at the big country house, and there's a murderer, and the butlers, and the upstairs people, and blah, blah, blah. And um, we just started spinning, in a funny way, from that. Then Bob knew about a writer, Julian Fellows, who had done some work for him, and he said, this guy might be good for it. So uh, I didn't think it was going to really go anywhere. But all of these kinds of ideas you have to just put in the ground and see if, see if they do grow sure. or not. Julian wrote a... I never saw him. I hired him over the telephone, actually. and I said, well, all right, well, here's kind of the things we're looking for and do an outline or so. And he sent us a, a rather complete, good outline, and I got very excited about it. And so he came over to America, and then we started... Adding this and subtracting this and going through the normal uh, process—the way these scripts are developed—when they don't come from a previously published or known source—and so it grew like topsy.
1: How much of the upstairs-downstairs theme came from you and Bob Balaban? How much from Julian Fellowes? Well, Julian,
2: the script all came from him. Uh, it's hard to think back. I mean, I'm quite sure if, if we sat around and said, uh, whose idea was this? About six people would say, oh, I, that was mine. Remember? And <laughs> well, you really don't remember. It's, it's like you have a discussion uh, about whether to, what kind of washing machine to get. And, well, whose idea was this? Your wife's or yours? So I think it was hers. I think it was mine. But it all comes from the same. And
1: how did you feel about making a film in England?
2: Best working experience I've ever had in, in my life, and I've done 38 some odd films and several kilometers of, um, of television. Mm-hmm.
1: So it was great; it was, really was, and uh, it and that's just the way it grew. And you've got this remarkable ensemble cast, obviously names that are familiar to a lot of us. Was that relatively easy to assemble? Well, it turned
2: out to be. I mean, I started asking people. I knew we were going to have a lot of people in this, a lot of characters, and uh, the big problem was, how does the audience uh, separate them? If you saw this film for the first time just now, I'm quite sure that you're not sure. of Now, wait a minute. Was she married to him or whose sister? I didn't get that part. I missed that. Mm -hmm. But in my defense... I'll suggest that if you go to a party with 30 or 40 people in it at someone's house, and you get in your car and you start driving home, you're saying, uh, "I like that blonde. Uh, which <laughs> one was she? He, she married to? Oh, oh, I didn't know that. I thought she was." So you really nobody mm. ever knows everything,
1: mm.
2: and we knew that was a problem in the film. So by casting Maggie Smith, when you see Maggie Smith, you know who she is the next time you see her. You don't have to wonder, you don't have to go and say, "Which one was she?" So about half of these people, more so in in, in Britain, are known, but it, it was very important to help the audience separate and keep track of who's who. So if we hired a tall guy, I said, okay, now for that part we got to get a short guy. So you have to help the audience. I've seen too many really good films myself, and afterwards I said, you know, I just. I got it mixed up. I didn't know which who was who. Was Russell Crowe or was it blah, blah, blah? So that was a, a problem, and, and, and that's the way we chose to uh, solve it. And everybody loved the script. All these actors liked it. They all wanted to play in it. And uh, suddenly we had a kind of a, a hot little item on our hands. And, uh, it
1: was wonderful. Some of the actors are being quoted in the press as saying that um, you sent them a memo that they had to be prepared to be around at all times. Is this true? Is it... Well, it was
2: not a memo. It was part of the deal. Uh, <laughs> as so many American actors, uh, which most of my experiences is with, uh, they'll say, oh, I'd love to be in your... Six days, hell, I'll be there. I can work. I said, no, no, this is ten weeks. And then their agents come in and they say, don't do that picture. And the agents don't mm-hmm. want them to do it. But this film, like Alan Bates, he worked, I'd say, the first six and a half weeks of shooting. He was working five days a week. And I don't think he had five words to say. He was buttling in the background there. But he was there all the time. And uh, the great thing I found out about working with these particular actors... And it's the philosophy of the English actor, I think, that's so uh, related to theater and to doing um, ensemble pieces and that sort of thing. Uh, They all were there and knew what they were doing. And I never saw an agent the whole time we were shooting. And had I had any American actors where we would let their agents get near us, they would be out measuring trailers and uh, (laughs) saying... He mm. has 17 more steps to walk to the set than she does, and mm-hmm. I want my client's trailer moved closer. <laughs> and then, of course, everything falls apart.
1: Mm. <laughs> but we didn't have that here. It was, it was great. In terms of the casting then, was it the people you chose, or did they sometimes read the script and suggest well, they might well, want other parts? Or Yeah,
2: I, I had a, a wonderful casting A woman here named Mary Selway, who uh, knows the territory. And uh, we saw a lot of people. We spent a lot of time. Again, I didn't want two people who may be the best actors in the world, but if, they, if they're similar, I'm afraid the audience would get mixed up with which one was, was he or she. So we tried to do everything we could to help separate them. And, of course, the real plot of all that is, uh, if you like the picture, you really have to go see it again. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, and again. Uh, and pay. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, if you pay, then I can pay them, and maybe even I can get paid one
1: day. <laughs> I mean, I think it's fairly evident that you have more sympathy for the characters below than above. Would you say that's true? Or? Well,
2: I think in the first place, the philosophy of the film was we never showed, or were with the upstairs people unless there was a servant present. I couldn't just arbitrarily go into a room between say Charles Dance and and Geraldine uh, Somerville and play a scene unless there was a servant there. Then it brings out that well, some of these people treated the servants as if the dog or the cat was in the room. They were very candid. Other times they postured or withheld things from the servants So we decided that we would tell the story through below stairs gossip. So every scene in the below stairs areas, there is some piece of plot information being delivered. And you have to, I feel, have to have strong rules so you just can't arbitrarily say, oh, here's a good idea, let's go do this. So you have to have some strong rules that you must abide by. And I think it gives the audience a sense that, oh, there is some truth here. For instance, it came up, I don't know the protocol, uh, Julian Fellows, who wrote this uh, screenplay and who was on the set for every scene we shot, he is of the manner born, I think. So I couldn't say whether it's supposed to be Lady Constance of... Trentham or Lady Trentham, Constance of—I uh, don't—I don't know those things—but I said we have to be correct because, first place, I know I'm going to be if this film gets out. I know I'm going to be under scrutiny as an American coming here and doing a film that's about British manners, culture, history, etc. So I wanted to be correct. I didn't want to. Call, although I'll tell you a funny thing. Ju- <laughs> Julian Fellow's wife Emma is a lady-in-waiting for Princess Michael so when we had our premiere or screening a few months ago Princess Michael uh, uh, who's a, a girl uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't I didn't uh, and uh, so I was introduced to her after the screening and uh, everybody saying oh it's you know, like everybody's polite and, and in most societies, oh, it's just wonderful. However, she says, uh, you know, the tea set that Maggie was served breakfast on that morning, that was 1942. That was made in 1942, not before that, so there's a big mm-hmm. error there. <laughs> and I said, well, honey, I'm glad you like the name. <laughs> but, uh, so we were careful about that. We had technical advisors. I had a, a housemaid a cook and a butler, footman butler, who were all in their mid to late 80s, who had all been in service in this time. And they were available to the actors. They were on the set all the time. So we had a lot of checks. We did try to to make it right. Mm. And I find in my experience of doing this for a long time that the more you stick to what is a truth, uh, the better it is. Because that is what it is. For instance, this thing of calling the visiting servants by the names of their employers, so that came up, and I said, What is that about? And they said, Well, that's what they did. That's how they did it. And I said, Well, we don't have to do that. I said, If we do that, I mean, Christ, it's hard enough to keep track of who's who anyway. Mm. And I thought, Well, if that's what it is, then let's do it that way. Mm. So we did that. And the other two kind of straight lines we had was the Ivor Novello character that Jeremy Northam played. That was all as historically factual as we could be. The same with the film, Charlie Chan in London. Bob Balaban, who played the uh, Weissman part, was not. But everything that was mentioned about that film, all the actors that were mentioned in it, all the plot points, all the studio heads, everything of that was, and that film was made
1: a year later, and it was made nineteen uh, thirty-four. Because the detail that always used to worry me was this business of the lodger, because I always think when he's talking about the lodger, his he, he first thought is the Hitchcock film from twenty-seven or something. But then he actually remade the lodger in Hollywood, which was yeah, a flop. No, the, is that uh, right? Yes. So uh, uh, yeah. Irv
2: <laughs> starred in uh, the lodger, which was Hitchcock's film. Yeah, it was a silent film, yeah. and it was a big, big hit. And then later, when Ivor became more famous, renowned, he revised it and did it, and that was the film that was a flop. Yeah. So in that scene, when he's talking to Maggie Smith, and she says, uh, talking about the lodger, he's talking about the second right. lodger that was made
1: within a year before that scene took mm-hmm. place in, in, in our film. A number of critics picked up on this, and, and it was my thought, too, that obviously is that you've been... Proceeded as an American looking at English society in this particular way by Joseph Losey, I suppose. I wonder whether that was something that ever occurred to you because I think you were an admirer of Losey when Well, he was I, I thought
2: Losey's, I think the go-between and some of Joe Losey's films that were made in England were marvelous. And he was a bit of a remittance man,
1: you know, himself. Mm-hmm. So, uh, did I answer question? Exactly I guess <laughs> <laughs> honorable steps to follow, yes. Perhaps I should open it up, anyone? Yes.
0: First question. Can you tell us about the film's title? Does it relate to anywhere in particular?
2: No, it's just... A, a Gosford Park is a name. I didn't want to give a, a title that told you something. Gosford Park, I think there's a Gosford uh, in, in Ireland. In fact, we were put on notice when we started, when the first publicity came out about this, by, I think it was in 90 some odd-year-old gentleman from the north of this country and who uh, said that was the name of his family house and certainly no murder ever occurred in it. <laughs> <laughs> and he was, he's, uh, demanded that we cease using the name, and if we did, he would sue us. He hasn't sued us, and we continued, and I don't think we've done him any harm. And also wasn't even sure he would be interested by the time the picture came yeah. out.
3: <laughs> when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.
1: Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me,
2: that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But
1: Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
0: In most of your career, you've been more of a star maker than a star user. Do you prefer working with lesser-known actors?
2: Well, in the first place, most of the earlier films that I did in America, I wasn't going to attract uh, Humphrey Bogart and people like that. And I think that's probably what got me headed toward this sort of ensemble kind of work that I, I like a lot. And another thing is that I haven't done very many films in which there is one or two lead characters that are the whole film. I did do a film in which there was only one actor in it. That was called Secret Honor, with an actor named Philip Baker Hall. But most of the films I've done have been more ensemble kind of pieces, plus the fact that you get down to the, what these films cost to make. I, in MASH, going back to MASH, in Nashville, the films that you know you may be familiar with here... We paid those people like $1,000 a week. I mean, we paid them to slightly over scale. We couldn't pay the salaries that, that were demanded. So those movie stars, our name actors, were really not available to me for, for quite some time. And still aren't. Well, Although Richard
1: Gere, I suppose, was a recent exception
2: in a way. Richard Gere, but Richard read that script and just said, I want to do this. and uh, He was really my producing partner on that. Dr. T and the women, but in most of the other films, a lot of the people that I have used have since become better known, not because of the films they did with me, but because of their yeah. own talent and tenacity and luck.
0: There's no mention of location in the film's credits. I wondered why that was? Well, now
2: I can say we this. i told about this earlier. This is the strangest thing. This place we shot belonged to a family named Bing. Uh, it's very close to uh, London. Everybody slept in their own bed. All the actors slept in their own beds if they chose to. <laughs> the yeah. And uh, when we... This... Uh, Rudham... Rudham Hall? It's in the papers recently. <laughs> yeah. So we had to sign a contract that we would never tell anybody where we were shooting because they didn't want to be... Uh, uh, Exposed? <laughs> so uh, we did that, and... Uh, and then suddenly, when I came back on this last trip, I see big articles and there's Robert Bing showing people around. Oh yes, this is really <laughs> shocking. <the same> <laughs> I guess since he let the cat out of the bag, I I can uh, throw the bag away.
0: <laughs> How have American audiences reacted to the film? Has the response been different to the UK?
2: The, the film in America is doing fantastic. I mean, I have a smile from here to there. The film has been very well reviewed, very well received. We won awards for it. We are nominated for here and there and this and that. And they really get it. And we wondered about that because I showed the film first to a public I was here at the... We opened the London Film Festival. And I didn't know how it would... what the balance would be. But it seems to be received basically the same in both... Uh, countries, although sometimes the jokes in America are a little funnier here, and sometimes here they're a little funnier. I mean, we get more response. But uh, basically, it's, it's not the same. The audience does not react the same. Uh, it's just a little different. But uh, it seems to work both uh, places. I think, you know, the first place America is uh, made of uh, Anglophiles, the language, and just to make many of you wince, but it's similar, <laughs> and uh, the emotions are, and, and also there's been a lot of films that have, that will educate people to this kind of, uh, of culture and existence of this kind of culture. I mean, we have seen them through 40, 50 years, I guess. It's working both places. We're going to show it in Germany uh, next week at the Berlin Film Festival, and It'll open in France in in March. It seems to be being received very well there. So you know maybe this will work. But I think if it does, it's because of the films that have come before it. In fact, we we I use this a lot. When you started, you say, "Oh, there's Maggie coming Maggie Smith coming out and getting into that old car, and oh, this is one of those uh, films. I like these." <laughs> <laughs> And so we try to really go down familiar paths and yet just give them a little twist or curl here and there.
3: How
0: did Ivan Novello end up being part of the story? Well, about 35
2: years ago, I was working on a project about World War I flying. And in that, putting that stuff together and doing research, I came across Ivor Novello. Keep the Home Fires Burning. Uh, uh, You know, he was a phenomenal uh, character. And he's unknown in America. But at the end of this film and going into the Second World War, Ivor was arrested for getting illegal petrol for a lady friend. And they put him in jail. And that prevented him from ever being knighted. And consequently, he kind of disappeared from the international scene. I mean, it really kind of ended. But he at one time had, I think, four musicals in the West End at the same time. He's written 250 popular songs. He starred in about six, seven movies. Uh, Garbo was his dear friend. He did silent films in Hollywood and here. And Noel Coward was kind of the second banana to him. But then that problem of uh, reputation and class again uh, raises its head and uh, it kind of ruined his life,
0: sort of. The camera seems to be constantly on the move throughout the film. Can you talk about your visual style?
2: Well, the reason of the way we shot the film is I find that so many of these period films, uh, they become very precise and kind of precious in a way. People speak slower. Uh, they don't make grammatical errors. They, uh, they don't speak unless spoken to. And there's a lot of formality. So it becomes kind of a... And the same way the way they're shot, if the films are shot. And so when it comes to the uh, the big line that ends the scene, uh, where Laurence Olivier says, loved her, I hated her. And, you, and the camera's in for a big close-up on him. Yeah. And I, I wanted to destroy that, and I don't say this in a derogatory way, but the Merchant Ivory, because these people were very helpful to me in all this, but this thing where it's kind of laid out on a silver tray for you to look at. And I, I also knew that if you don't pay attention to one of these films of mine anyway, you're not going to get it. Television has destroyed so much of the theater in, in film is that, you know, you know, the bloke will be sitting there and uh, he gets up to go and get another beer and uh, comes back and he says, did it kill her yet? I mean, everybody knows what's going to happen. Everybody knows at the end every person's everything. And uh, I wanted to put you on notice to say, pay attention or you're not going to get it. I kept the camera arbitrarily. Those camera moves were not so they ended up at a certain place at, a, at the right time. We had two cameras in most of the scenes and I would start one over here and one here and say, okay, when we start, when we say action is the word, I think, this camera just arbitrarily starts moving and the cameraman is back panning to whatever the other camera is going the other way. So there's always movement. Now, one good thing about that is that the cameraman cannot light this too beautifully because by the time he gets it lit for your close-up, the camera's already moved away from that. And sometimes the, the key line, Maggie Smith says, well, oh, there's not a, a jealous bone in my body. She's out the door and it's on her back. Rather than going in, to underscore it for you. So what really we're trying to say, I think, is pay attention or you're going to miss it. And it's the same reason for the... I don't know if there's a rating of the film here in uh, in Great Britain.
1: Fifteen, I think.
2: Because in America, you're a PG-13, which means if you're 13 years old, you can Uh go see it. And then there's an R, which is restricted, and then you have to be with a parent and Mm keeps the kid... And so when we gave the film to the rating board in America, the studio or the distributing company called me up. And I remember this woman was very distressed. She says, Mr. Altman, I've have, I have got some terrible news. And I said, well, what? And she says, you're getting an R rating. I said, well, great. That's the plan. <laughs> and she says, but think of all the people. I said, I don't want 13-year-old people coming in to see this movie especially boys, they're not going to like it, mm. they're not going to get it, they're not going to have the patience for it. And so, I don't want the wrong audience, but yet that's... the, the, the salesmen, the selling companies, they want everybody. They say, yeah, make it. Mm. So that's why we're getting these films, I think, that really get down to the lowest common denominator. Presumably it's an R because of the language. Yeah, there's yeah. twelve fucks in it. Right. <laughs> and I think you're allowed four. Oh, all right, okay. <laughs> right. I don't know who made those rules, but uh, <laughs> I did that on purpose and and uh, so that we would definitely get an R rating because I, I, I'd say I don't want to track the
1: wrong audience. Just to go back on this business of the camera movement, though, I mean, it's not only how the audience see the film, it's also the atmosphere that creates on the set, isn't it? Well, so the you know,
2: actors, uh, uh, you know, if there's 25 actors in the scene and moving around they don't know whether the camera's on them or not. So consequently, they're off of this thing and say, I'll save my big moment for my close-up. Because one, there were very few close-ups in the film, and secondly, they just didn't know. And those scenes, we don't just do little three words here and three words there. These scenes, you know, every time, they'd run six, seven minutes. And we'd do the, the whole scene. Then the second time, we would shoot the same scene. The camera's as far as the actors were concerned, seemed to be doing the same thing. The lighting was the same. There was nothing that made it any different than they were just doing another take, but we actually were filming other people and other things at that time. They got to the point where they were on stage. They were never off stage. And they just fell into that, which meant that they're performing all the time.
0: Can you tell us about the scene where we discover that Eileen Atkins and Helen Mirren are actually sisters?
2: They were not sisters in the script. Really, without this last scene between Helen Mirren and Eileen Atkins, when when she breaks down, if that scene were not in this film, I do not think that this film would be doing... I think it'd be admired, but it would not have this popular feeling that it does. We were six and a half weeks into the shooting, and... Nowhere in our minds were those two women to be sisters. I was sitting in the dining room, and I saw Eileen Atkins come in. And I looked up at her, and I said, oh, gee, she looks terrific. And I looked over, and there was Eileen sitting at the table eating. And I looked back, and I said, "What? who is it? And it was Helen Mirren. First time we'd seen her in her wig and make in, you know, costume. She'd come out to do a still photo that day. And I looked at her and I looked at Eileen and I said, I'm in trouble. I said, these women look like sisters. And Julian Fellows, who the writer, was sitting in, across from me and I called him over and I said, look at this. And then I got the two ladies together and they came over and then I said, you know, I made a big mistake here. And I said, let's make them sisters. And I said, fine. And, uh, <laughs> and, and that happened right there. And had this been a big-budget uh, movie with lots of high-powered producers on it, that never could have happened, that change. <laughs> and I think if we had not done that, I don't think this picture would be enjoying the kind of success that it seems to be now. Another question? Yes.
0: You mentioned you've made 38 films. What are your plans for your 39th?
2: <laughs> I'm starting a film in New York uh, called Voltage, It's sort of an ensemble piece about an engineering factory in 1991. And this is a place that makes little, minuscule things for big airplanes. And it's during the time when uh, the leadership of America was uh, a man called George Bush, Colin Powell, and uh, Cheney. (laughs) Only it was 1991. Mm. And it's the time that they not to cause uh, Saddam Hussein too much problem and, and also to protect oil interests, I think, that they, uh, they let him go, and, we're, and it's kind of interesting that we're now having the results of that today. Hmm?
0: The film alludes to the idea that Hollywood could be the new aristocracy. Do you think things were changing in the 30s as people began to look up to film stars rather than the upper classes?
2: Well, this was in 1933. Was the end of that indentured servitude, so to speak. I mean, at the beginning of the century, most women were not educated, and if they didn't have somebody to take care of them, they didn't have much choice except going into service like this or prostitution. And uh, the the lady in the house on the hill would come down to the village, and here's a 13 year old girl and. And they said, okay, we'll take her and she'll be a scullery made up in the house. And the parents were happy to do that because, one, they knew she'd be uh, looked after and protected and wouldn't be on her own. She'd be fed. And also it gave an extra space in their bed so there could, instead of being four children in that bed, there'd be three. And then, of course, the, then the First World War came along and women started being educated and jobs kind of opened up that uh, were not possible before that. And then at this time, and, and say 1933, 32, and we are, by the time the Second World War was, you know, they were handling rivet guns and flying airplanes and doing all sorts of stuff. So it, was, uh, it changed the social structure. That doesn't mean that there aren't houses and maids and butlers and people who have jobs like that, but they can make their own choices more now.
1: You're you're alluding to the Naiva Novello character who becomes almost like a modern celebrity. Oh, Novello was uh, not a
2: posh. Uh, He was a Welshman, and uh, he became a big, big star. But Maggie Smith's character says it, she says it's so interesting to have a movie star, uh, a film star visiting, but after the first flush of recognition there's not much to talk about is there mm. and uh, all of that seems to be in there i think julian fellows who wrote the screenplay did a, a really masterful
0: job arnold schwarzenegger made an early appearance in your film the long goodbye did you cast him yourself
2: <clears throat> no there was an actor in that film named uh, david arkin who played one of those characters and uh, he said I got a friend a guy I just met and he looks terrific he's got he's got the damnest muscles you've ever seen and, and I said well fine bring him along we'll we'll use him as one of the the guys mm-hmm. Arnold didn't talk about that though he doesn't remember that film <laughs> but he said, I liked him Arnold Arnold was terrific
0: of all your films which is your favorite <laughs>
2: Do you have children? (laughs) How many? Which is your (laughs) favourite? I tend to love my least successful children the most. But you're pretty happy about this one. But I shamelessly say I like them all. I really do. No, I I love this film.
0: Could you talk about the film's music?
2: You mean the, the, the background music, the score? Uh, well, I used Patrick Doyle to do this score. He's uh, had done a lot of music for my good friend Ken Brana, and uh, I like Patrick. And I said, I, I just, I just need a pad. Sometimes you need music to help the audience shut out the rest of the world, just to keep them in. But it's not. I mean, it, it doesn't tell you that something's going to happen it's not it's it's just a, kind of a, an atmosphere I try to always in the beginning of conceiving a film I'd love love the music to be indigenous I always say okay there's not going to be any violins that you can't see uh, there's not gonna be music coming from nowhere I've never achieved that and I
1: uh, well, The Long Goodbye comes close, doesn't it? Well, The Long
2: Goodbye we took the same...
1: But it appears in these
2: different and, and situations. And every... Uh, it's the same da-da-da-da-da. That's a Johnny Mercer... Uh, did you
1: hear it as music in the supermarket, doorbell... You hear it as the, it, it, the
2: doorbell rings, yeah, anything. Yeah. And that was sort of a... it became a character in itself. Mm. In Gosford Park, I love what uh, uh, Patrick did. He really gets you in that... I, I don't understand music, I don't understand very much of anything, really, but it's something that's visceral and it's kind of inside of you, and yet it doesn't, I try not to lead what the action is going to be. I mean, we don't hit those chords and go, and you think, oh, I better be scared. But each case, it's, it's, it's a different thing. One, one day I will do a film with, I
1: don't know, music. time for a couple more, I think.
0: Did you have any problems when it came to editing the film?
1: Well, I had
2: less problems with this film than any film I've ever done, I think. Uh, The editing went together like that. There's very few scenes uh, that aren't in this film. There are about three scenes I shot between different characters where I had one, say, one plot point that I had to get out to the audience. So I shot it in a scene with Geraldine Somerville and Charles Dance. And I shot the same information in the scene with two of the other characters. And I think I did the same thing with two other characters. I didn't know when I got to that point that I want to see these people or these people. So I did that two or three times. So obviously only one of the three choices was used, because that's what got the information across. But other than that, the film is, uh, there's no- nothing And if, I, if we go to do the DVD and they say, ah, now we'll put in all the scenes that were cut out, <laughs> there aren't any. But I think that's just that everything worked. It just went together and it, it, it finished and we looked at it and said, you know, this is what it is.
0: There are a lot of stars in the film. How did you go about directing them? I
2: don't think that I direct anything. No, I'm serious. I, by the time a film is cast, and we have the script and we have the cast, about 85% of my creative work is finished. If an actor comes to me and says, how should I play this scene? I will never give him a direct answer. I will say, oh, are you going to wear those those boots? Oh, let's see if we can't get uh, brown boots. Uh, and anything, because the minute I say, da-da-da, they da, have da, taken 360 degrees of possibilities and narrowed it down to six. And afterwards the film's no good, and the actor said, oh, I was in that film. He said, well, you it yeah, wasn't very good, was it? He said, I just did what he told me to do. <laughs> but... <laughs> but, but the truth of the matter is, is that what I want to see is something I've never seen before. So, how can I tell somebody what that is? So I really am looking for uh, something from these actors in these scenes that uh, that can excite me. And I think that's that's valid, but it it is truthful because I don't. I sit there and I watch it and I watch it and I think, God, this will work. But really, if I see what is at the height of my imagination and the whole film is done that way, it's not going to be a very good film. The real communication from this quasi-art medium comes from the actors, the performers. They're the ones that can... Not say something, walk a certain way. Something in the background happens, and you, as the audience, if you're hooked in this, if you get caught up in it, you go, "Ah, oh, I don't know what it is, but 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 that's right, that's right," and that's the kind of emotion that that we're trying to to give to you people, the faces that are sitting there and looking at. It. We're trying to, for that time, just transport you away from that. If Any film came out the way I envisioned it going in. I mean, I promise you it'll be a bad film.
1: (laughs) I promise you. Well, I don't know what you envisaged for this, but I think it turned out pretty well. So please join me in thanking Robert Altman. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks for listening to this Barbican Screen Talk with Robert Altman. If you haven't subscribed to this podcast, you can do so via iTunes or Acast or visit barbican.org.uk slash ScreenTalksArchive. And we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on social media in all the usual places. Just look for at Barbican Centre.
3: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well...